Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me on this I Am The Law very special podcast. Um, I have someone here who I've been meaning to speak to for quite some time. Um, very busy guy, but but made some time for me today, which I'm very thankful for. I'm with Jonathan Askin. Um, Jonathan, thank you again for joining me. Pleasure to be here. All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do, who you are, where you've been, all that good stuff. Well, by day, I am a law professor at Brooklyn Law School. I am also visiting at the University of London, uh, as well as uh, doing some co-teaching over at MIT, and otherwise essentially a uh, tech policy advocate for uh, innovative startups and entrepreneurs. Gotcha. And you're the founder and director of the Brooklyn Law Incubator and Policy Clinic, correct? That's right. Tell me about what in the world that is. Well, so, and I believe it was the first of its kind. The ambition was to create a program here at Brooklyn Law School where we could really train the next generation of lawyers to understand the full spectrum of needs of next generation tech-oriented clients. Uh, This grew out of my, I I was a longtime DC policy, tech policy advocate. And me and all my friends in DC thought we were tech lawyers. And we really weren't. What we really were were lobbyists who knew some of the terminology that Silicon Alley and Silicon Valley were throwing at us. Um, but we really didn't know the first thing about transactional work or litigation or the operational needs of the tech startup community. Then I came to New York and started representing bona fide tech startups, not just on the policy and political front, but really doing transactional work, litigation support, uh, operational support. And I realized that me and my friends in the, you know, the lawyers in the tech world also weren't full-blown tech lawyers because we didn't really understand the trajectory of politics and policy and how it was going to affect uh, next generation clients. So I thought it was really important to train this new generation of lawyers that knew not just the transactional needs of clients, not just the litigation support needs of clients, not just the policy trajectory and not just the politics that would affect clients, but to know it all, to at least have some understanding of how policy and politics and litigation and transactional work was really going to affect this, you know, the, the, the client in the digital age. So I thought Students should leave law school with that broad understanding, even if they decide ultimately they're going to be transactional lawyers or ultimately they're going to be litigators or ultimately they're going to be policy advocates. They needed to have that broader spectrum because policy and technology and law are so intertwined now that we've got this whole new generation of startup that is doing things that the law has never really anticipated. And how has that program been going? How was it received initially? I mean, when you, when you came up with this, you had mentioned it was essentially the first of its kind. Um, how was it received initially? And then how has it sort of gone since? Well, the dirty secret is I sort of perpetrated a fraud on my academic colleagues. Is that right? Yeah. Circa 2007, when I, was launch- when I launched, I had been teaching here at uh, Tech and Telecom Law. And the school decides that it wants to create an IP clinic. Circa 2007, IP clinic is the phrase du jour. Every school, every law school worth its salt wants an IP clinic. (laughs) So I said, you know what? I'm going to give you an IP clinic. 
But to me, IP meant a lot more than just intellectual property. I thought intellectual property was just one small component of the needs of next generation clients. So I'm going to create an IP clinic. I'm going to come up with another moniker, another uh, uh, phrase for what IP could stand for. To me, it meant information policy. It meant internet protocol. It, of course, meant intellectual property. But I decided we're going to call this incubator and policy so that students will actually work to incubate clients, incubate startups, incubate next generation startups, but also do some policy advocacy. So that we're not just doing the legal support work for the clients, but we're also doing some systemic policy reform so that we both morph the client to suit the needs of the law, the requirements of the law, but also work to morph the law to suit the needs of next generation clients. Got it. And how's that been going since, since you started? Uh, it's been wonderful. I think in the seven years we've been running, we've represented well more than 700 clients, mostly Brooklyn-based startups, but also New York more broadly and now globally. Tell me almost as an aside, I mean, I, the, you mentioned Brooklyn startups and that, that interests me. So I'm originally from Brooklyn and, you know, I, I was dying to move to the city. Like that's all I want to do my entire life. And I finally saved up um, enough uh, enough coin to move here for a little while. Um, and then as soon as I moved here, everything moved back to Brooklyn. You know, I, I do primarily real estate um, in my practice areas. And I noticed that Brooklyn was booming and everyone's going back there. And then a few people had mentioned the startup scene is sort of moving to Brooklyn as well. And um, uh, there's, there's a bunch of real estate in downtown Brooklyn that's almost going to be exclusively used by commercial and, and startup tenants. How have you seen that morph in the years since you've been in Brooklyn? And what, what, what do you see the future of that as being? So I love the fact that you use that phrase, the city, Yeah. because the city means something very different to me today. Yeah. I think when you say the city, you mean uh, that Brooklyn beta test that some people call Manhattan. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> That is yes. absolutely correct, yes. Uh, so, so I'll tell you what's happened to me over the past seven years. And in part, I got pretty lucky. Yeah. Uh, about seven years ago, six years ago, even five years ago, my students and I would spend about five nights in Manhattan okay. because that's where everything was happening. Right. There wasn't a tech scene to, you know, a tech event to be had in Brooklyn circa 2008. Sure. Now what's bizarre is we can spend five nights a week in Brooklyn. Right. Because everything we need is happening here. Right. So Brooklyn's tech star, Brooklyn's innovation star has been rising during the time that we've been running our program, which has worked out beautifully for us. So what I love is that my students now get to represent their former college classmates who went off and started ventures. So we get to do the legal side of what is growing in Brooklyn. Sure. Uh, uh, I, 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 some, by some accounts, I think Brooklyn may have more startups per square inch than any place else in the world, at least what we call the Brooklyn Tech Triangle. Oh, wow. Between Dumbo, downtown Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, now extending out to Gowanus and Sunset Park. Uh, yeah, we could do nothing but represent innovative tech startups in Brooklyn if we so choose. Do you see, uh, 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 and this, this is another thing where it, real estate sort of plays into this as well. Do you see a period of time, and, and I was specifically talking about, you know, when I read about the Jehovah's Watchtower sale that occurred uh, to Jared Kushner, I, I looked at it for a second and I, I was perplexed by it. And I was like, this is kind of genius because I, I thought I saw a scenario in which people in Brooklyn, right? So the, the whole problem with going more south in Brooklyn and, and keep going there is is the trek to the city. But... Do you see a time in the next few years where 
people aren't just i mean the, the city's going to be or manhattan i should say is going to be an afterthought right where yeah. you live and you work and and you start things up in brooklyn itself and the businesses blossom in brooklyn you stay in brooklyn you see that happening quite soon even more so than it is now oh yeah when you yeah. think of where the young tech oriented uh startups want to work it's not in the skyscrapers of manhattan right it's in the open converted warehouse spaces of brooklyn particularly the brooklyn waterfront right that's what I see. The you know, I mean, conversion of the Brooklyn. The the you, you could see it in the Navy Yard, and you see it in Sunset Park, and now you're seeing it in the old yes, your, the old Watchtower buildings. Right. The ability for everyone to work in close proximity. The, uh, you know, a writer, uh, Stephen Johnson. Uh, I'm not familiar with him. No. So Stephen Johnson, uh, uh, there's a, a PBS program uh, that he's running right now. But he wrote a book. If he, he he was a, a, a startup guy from Dumbo. Okay. He started a company called Outside In. In Dumbo, one of the pioneering companies in, in Brooklyn, AOL ended up buying them. They were a hyperlocal company. But more recently, Stephen Johnson wrote a book called "Where Good Ideas Come From," and to me, that sort of epitomizes what Brooklyn is about. Because to me, Brooklyn is the place where good ideas come from. The, the, for me, the principle is: great startups and great new ideas aren't really happening in South Dakota. Right. They're happening in Brooklyn. And why are they happening in Brooklyn? They're happening in Brooklyn because you've got this great melting pot of young innovators from all different sectors, just across the spectrum. And you don't know what's going to happen when you throw all them together into the stew. Right. But you know when you've got very creative young people from all different sectors, they mash up together and great things happen. You don't know what the future is going to look like, but you know it's going to happen where those people are mingling. Yeah, and it's interesting how quickly it's actually happening. Again, I moved out to the city, uh, to Manhattan, I should say, in 2007, I want to say. And there wasn't, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe there wasn't a scene. I just wasn't familiar with it at all. And in a very short period of time, forget the real estate or anything else, it just, it, it, all of these creative people said, I want to go here, as opposed to, I want to go to the East Village or the Lower East Side or whatever it is. I don't know if it was the the sort of economics of, of it, I'm sure that played a huge part of it. But at the end of the, of the day, these restaurants, these neighborhoods would pop up that were idea-centric and idea-rich. And they had people that not just wanted to take chances, I think that wanted to be immersed within that culture itself and see what sort of developed, right? That's sort of the, the, the feeling I got when I left there, um, which, is, which is really amazing to actually see, which I'm very jealous of, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, as someone that rents space in, uh, in Manhattan as it is. Um, Talk to me a little bit about some of the policy advocacy that you actually do and, and the students are actually involved in because I'm, I'm interested in that as well. Yeah, so each of my students is obligated to find an area in which the law has not kept up with the needs of a new emerging idea or startup. Okay. Um, some are more creative than others, but uh, the, the, the goal is to try to play a role in morphing the law to better suit the needs of this next generation of startups. So there's so much going on in, say, the world of 3D printing, digital making, or the sharing economy, or uh, you right. know, anything copyright related, right. or patent reform. Uh, these are all areas that uh, some segment of my students care about. Uh, Equity crowdfunding. You know, uh, Brooklyn, what's Brooklyn the home of? Among other things, the home of uh, Kickstarter. Right. Now, so we've got definitely the pioneers in crowdfunding for worthy projects. Now, Congress and the SEC have opened up the door to what we're calling equity crowdfunding. 
right. the ability to actually get a financial stake. But it's a third rail issue. The you know the the legal implications, the economic implications, the ability to uh, 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 the the, uh, the ethical and legal ramifications of allowing anyone to contribute and get an equity stake in a company opens up the door to all sorts of uh, nefarious activity. Sure. But there's real value to be had from extending the concept of crowdfunding and allow uh, investors to get a, a piece of the stake and right. not just a t-shirt. Right. But uh, I think it's got to be done very carefully. I, I think, you know, one thing we forget, historically, lawyers have been revolutionary forces. Mm. I think we forgot that in the past few decades. We think when, I think when most people think of lawyers, they think of the maintainers of the status quo. Right. Aversion think, to risk. Yes, yeah. yeah. What we're supposed to maintain society, the structure, the order of society. But that's nonsense. If you think about every great moment, every great revolutionary moment, who's been there to run the revolution and to put the pieces of a new society back together after the revolution? It's been the lawyers. Sure. It's those with the sophisticated, nuanced legal training to reestablish order in society. You look at the American Revolution. Who had to write the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, the implementing uh, statutes and regulations to govern this new democratic experiment? It was the lawyers. After the uh, uh, um, Civil War, who had to implement this, the uh, civil rights amendments? Who had to implement all the new acts uh, and regulations to uh, create a new just society? It was the lawyers. Uh, after, during the Depression, the New Deal, who wrote all of that? It was young lawyers that FDR brought into Washington. After the Civil Rights Act of 64, it was the lawyers. After the digital revolution, the internet happened, the Communications Act was dramatically reformed, who is it that is now forced to put the pieces together of a new digitally oriented society? It's the lawyers, but it's lawyers who both not only understand uh, legal analysis, but it's ideally lawyers who understand technology. So it's a different type of lawyer then? Uh, I think it's a lawyer steeped in technology, yes. It's not the lawyer who's playing on fax machines. It's the lawyer who's playing with social networks. Here's, here, because here's the sense I get when, when, when you discuss the fully immersed sort of individual that's there, and I think it's a, it's, it's a great – and I say this sincerely. I think it's an amazing idea because I, I think that far too long we've been thought – I mean lawyers specifically – is that we're dropped into an industry, right? So we're supposed to be general counsel for a specific, let's say, fashion company, but we don't have a background in fashion or anything else. So we kind of we, – we rely on the law obviously, but we learn along the way or whatever it is. We, we're, we're far into the actual industry though, right? We're just sort of a figurehead we're there to protect. And I think it's a completely different – the reason I mentioned that it's a different lawyer is that – if you have someone that not only understands the law surrounding internet regulation or let's say crowdfunding or anything else, but ha has experience within that sphere, I think it's an invaluable asset, not only to that lawyer, but to a potential employer going forward, right? Um, that, that's sort of what I think of in, in terms of the merge. I'd, I'd love to sort of hear your take on that. Yeah, uh, uh, the big problem is society and technology and ventures are moving much faster than the law sure. as a profession, as sure. a trade, has been has wanted to move. Lawyers, I always call it, yeah, but lawyers in a why not world. What are lawyers? Lawyers are very methodical. We have to make sure everything is perfect before it sees the light of day. Sure. That's not how new ventures are working. New ventures, if you think about Google, Google's essentially every one of its products has been in perpetual beta for 10 years. Yeah. That's the nature of these new ventures. You pivot and you 
morph the venture as quickly as possible. Historically, lawyers have been trained to say, hold on a second. Sure. That's not the way we do things here. This might run afoul of the law. You better stop. Well, guess what? Someone somewhere is not going to stop. I'll give you a, I learned this the hard way. I used to be a lawyer for a company called, I bet you've never heard of this company, a company called Free World Dial-Up. Nope. Of course not. Yeah. You ever hear of a company called Skype? Of course. <laughs> yes. Well, Free World Dial-Up was Skype before Skype was Skype. Hmm. The difference was Skype was a bunch of renegades who were not allowed in America, who were going to run their venture regardless of what um, U.S. regulations and statutes said. These were the guys who started Kazaa, Kazaa was a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing network. Sure. If they came to America, they were going to get slapped with subpoena. Sure. Free will dial up, the difference was, had me for a lawyer, and their lawyer said, hang on, what we're doing might look like a telecom service. Let's ask the FCC if what we're doing is legal and can re proceed unregulated. So the company deferred to their lawyer, and in lightning speed, 18 months, the FCC said, go ahead, what you're doing is not going to be a regulated telecom service. 18 months, fast in law time, but not in business time. Skype, during that period, got a user base of more than 30 million people. Uh, it was almost impossible for Free Will Dial-Up to compete against Skype, that already had that great you know, 18 month head start at that point. So my lesson learned was sometimes the lawyer has to figure out, has to move quickly and figure out ways to advance the venture when the law is uncertain. Do you think that there's a way, you know, you bring up a really interesting point. Um, it, it brings up um, another podcast that I did uh, and it was with Abe, I'm gonna butcher his last name, is Geiger from, from Shake Law. I don't know sure. If, right. And when I spoke to him, he's a great guy. Um, but when I spoke to him, in the back of my mind, you know, he, he essentially what Shake does is that they they allow, so let's say for for the for some parts of it, uh, freelance people. Let's say a DJ wants to do a gig, and the DJ doesn't have time or maybe the resources to go to a lawyer and say, "Look, I want you to draw up a contract for me." Um, you know, for each venue that I do, Shake just gives them the opportunity to use a pre-drafted sort of form, send it over to the venue. The venue signs, they, uh, the DJ signs, they're in contract. It's done within 10 minutes or so, right? It's a great idea, and it would slam against the wall of any lawyer that says, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. What are the terms? Are you protected? I guess my question then is, but I, I see Shake coming out in front. Right, mm -hmm. I, I don't see law coming out in front, and maybe it'll be to a few people's detriment if they use it. Maybe not. I'm not sure. But how does a lawyer catch up, or can lawyers catch up with this? Because the speed at which this is going, you know, I've met with plenty of clients. Some of the stuff that we do is small business, and they understand where I'm coming from in terms of a legal sort of protection end. But they could. It's not that they could care less. It's just that they're, you know, it's almost like they've eaten all the sugar in the kitchen, and they're saying, "I get this, but I got to go right now, and I got to make this." Right. So I think it's a very tough balancing act, and there have to be very serious legal judgments and business judgments made on every step of the way. I think Shake serves an incredibly valuable real-time function for a lot of companies that have to get going and have to get going now and right. need contracts on the fly. Right. So that's a very valuable service. Look, frankly, I think a lot of the value of Shake comes from having in-house lawyers. Their in-house lawyer, Vinay Jain, I think I, I look at him as sort of the consummate legal hacker. He's sure. a lawyer who sees the value of a new venture, and he's playing a role in making Shape abide by the law, but making it move quickly in sure. real time. So the, 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 uh, what I try to do with my students, and this gets to sort of the legal hacker concept, our goal here in part 
is to imbue in law students and the next generation of a lawyer a piece of the hacker ethos. The concept that society is going to move fast and lawyers have to learn to move almost as fast, if not as fast. Uh, you know the Dr. Seuss story, Zach's Bypass? Yes. Yeah. So, so the way I look at it is lawyers are the Zach's. You know, they're, they're stubborn and not moving. And one says, uh, I'm going to stay here forever. I don't care if the world stops. Right. But guess what? The world doesn't stop. The world moves around the Zacks, and they build this highway configuration right around the Zacks. So lawyers have to recognize that they can't behave like the Zacks. They have to get on that highway and play a vital role. And frankly, a better world is a world in which lawyers are lean and mean and ready to move rapidly and quickly and make that balancing, uh, th those decisions. When can the law be quick and fast? And when do we have to be a little bit more careful and step back and say we've got to be a little bit more th methodical here, but we can do both. So let me ask you this if I can, and tell me a little bit more about the hacker ethos. And we're not talking North Korea hacker ethos. We're talking about a completely separate hacker yeah. ethos. Tell me about legal hackers. Tell me about this hacker ethos. So here, yeah, and, and I think Shake Law is a great example of uh, sort of the, when the spotlight was shined on me. There was a company called Docracy. It was a Dumbo startup. It was running out of an incubator in Dumbo. It was run by two hackers, not two lawyers, but Docracy was an effort to essentially crowdsource the law. Mm -hmm. Crowdsource legal document production, mostly by lawyers. And it scared the hell out of me. This was probably six years ago. Uh, they, I, I spoke with them, I sat down with them, and I thought, what you're doing is so disruptive for the law. It's taking jobs away from young lawyers, primarily, who would be crafting these documents. And then I thought, you know what, it's inevitable. Best to have my young lawyers be the lawyers crafting those documents than my lawyers to sit on the sidelines like wallflowers while the world changed around them. Right. So I took what Docracy was doing to heart and I realized this should be done not just by technologists but also by lawyers. So we decided, it was right around that time we decided we should start running legal hackathons. So seven years ago, my students and I would go to hackathons. And we always felt like wallflowers. We'd maybe speak at the beginning, and then for 46 hours, we'd sit around and twiddle our thumbs in awe at what the coders and developers were doing over the course of the weekend. And then, come 6 p.m. on Sunday, we'd hear the reports, and we'd say, that's great, but you know, you, you run afoul of this law, this, re this regulation. Uh, here's how we clean you up and make you a viable business. That wasn't good enough. I thought what was really important was for lawyers to participate and law students to participate. So we decided we're going to bring the hackathon home. We're going to run hackathons around issues that are important to us and make lawyers and law students a part of the process from the first moment of the hackathon. So we ran a couple hackathons with essentially mostly lawyers in the room. And we're not coders. We were, you know, we worked around legislation essentially, drafting legislation, collaborating on new legislation, new regulations. But that wasn't good enough. We really wanted to create platforms. But we couldn't do that without technologists in the room. So we thought, let's run hackathons where it's both lawyers and technologists working together for the weekend to try to use technology to improve the law and legal process and to try to use the law and law reform to improve the plight of ventures and technologists. So frankly, what we've been doing for the past more than a year now is working primarily with MIT folks in the Media Lab and their legal sciences group at MIT 
so that we can actually work together and compare ideas uh, and work on joint projects together. So we've been doing that for more than a year now, and we'll continue to do that, I hope, in you know, uh, uh, through eternity uh, to bring technologists and lawyers together, uh, both to uh, work on law reform and to use law to improve um, uh, ventures. And you were telling me before, actually, when we spoke, you, you had mentioned to me that you're doing some work in Europe. I, I'd love if you could touch upon that as well. Yeah, and this actually grew out of some domestic frustrations I had had. About five years ago, uh, so I chaired the Internet Governance Working Group for the Obama campaign So I, in 2008, so I have some pretty good connections in D.C. tech policy circles. So about five years ago, I went down to the White House. They were about to launch something called the Startup Amer America Partnership. And that was an effort to bring support services to burgeoning tech centers around America. So not necessarily New York City or Silicon Valley, but more like Nashville, sure. the next phase. Sure. And I thought, well, the piece they're missing is free, creative, and routine legal support from organizations like my Brooklyn Law Incubator and Policy Clinic. Perhaps we can use the Startup America Partnership to roll out similar programs around America. The White House kind of liked the idea. They introduced me to the folks running the Startup America Partnership, but we were a little slow in America. Right. So I decided, well, why don't I try to do this in you know uh, fertile territory where the concept of legal clinics doesn't even exist? So I went to Europe, and I spoke to folks at the European Union, and then I did a quick tour around sort of some of the leading tech law programs in Europe, and we got a grant from the European Commission. Wow. And I'm working now with four core European law schools, and we have now 13 additional European law schools in which we're building programs like mine here in Brooklyn, but those law programs are designed to help the startup communities within their respective regions. So my core partners are at the University of London, the University of Amsterdam, the University of Hamburg, and KU Leuven outside of Belgium. And they are working with their own startup uh, communities to provide that essential free routine and creative legal support. So those startups are ripe and ready and can succeed. So two follow-up questions to that because it's actually quite exciting. Number one is how would you rate the difference between the regulation? And again, it's sort of a broad question, but the regulation in the U.S. versus the regulation in Europe in that which one seems to have the better ability to allow these startups to get up and running really quickly um, and, and I guess the second part to that is, does Europe, given, given the economic circumstances Europe's been in for years now, do they see this? And again, it's, I'm sure it's, it's based on the country itself. Uh, some countries are different. But do they see this as an opportunity to sort of come out of the, the hole that they're in by allowing this industry to flourish just as, as it's helped tremendously uh, in the United States? So I think a program like mine here in Brooklyn is much more valuable to the startup communities of Europe than to the startup communities of America. And I'll tell you why. We've had, we've got really a much, we've got decades lead on Europe as far as our startup and business spirit is concerned. It's, you know, America has a lot of business clarity. American startups, by and large, understand the value of crossing every T and dotting every I when you do a startup. There are enough law firms and lawyers in America that you can cobble together sufficient legal support, you know, make sure your IP is good, make sure you've got the right business structure. Much more 
of a known quantity in America. In Europe, they don't have that same sense of, uh, you know, let's make sure the startup has its legal structure clean and in place and all of its IP and equity set up from the get-go. So I think it's been historically more difficult for a European startup to get funding in part because a VC or an angel isn't quite as sure that the European startup has its equity arrangements in place, has its IP in place, has its corporate structure in place. Hmm. So I think there's an incredible vacuum and opportunity for young lawyers in Europe that doesn't necessarily exist in America where we've got good business law structures and where we've got a, 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 a well-established legal community uh, trying to help. Uh, so having said that, the void is greater in Europe and there is more of a need for law schools to fill that void than there is in America. Now, that's not to say we don't have that void in America. It's just not as uh, apparent. You know, look, we've got Delaware law in America. They don't have the real equivalent of Delaware law in Europe. Right, right. Um, and, and sort of jump piggybacking on that, the role of government when it comes to, just, just from your sort of take on this, in, in terms of the startup culture and everything else, is it more... Is your feeling get out of the way or is it more, well, there's there's a lot of things that you can do to sort of help entrepreneurs succeed, right? So so I guess the, it's the classic stance of should, should government essentially step aside and allow this to happen or can government do things to support those innovators? Uh, that's a two-edged sword. Yes. There are certainly ways in which government should get out of the way and make sure new ventures can flourish without being burdened by unnecessary regulation. But there are also important ways that government can enhance and improve the plight of new ventures. Uh, you know, you, you see this in uh, essentially our Startup Visa Act. You know, we've got immigration problems. One very easy thing America could do, it's very difficult for foreign entrepreneurs to want to come and state, put their flag in American soil and start new ventures in America because of visa issues. Sure. Wouldn't it be much easier if America sent a signal to the world that, yes, bring us your brilliant technologists and your brilliant entrepreneurs. We will welcome them here in America. Yes, absolutely. You've got, you know, we've got Blue Seed, which is a ship sailing off the coast of Silicon Valley with foreign entrepreneurs because they can't put their flag in the ground in Silicon Valley. Right. It's absurd. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got big battles brewing over the nature of sharing economy services. Should Airbnb be allowed to proceed unregulated without much government oversight? Should Uber be allowed to proceed unregulated without government, government oversight? I think this is an interesting balancing act. It kind of scared me, concerned me that so many of my technophile friends said, government, get the hell out of the way. Let Airbnb do what it wants. Let Uber do what it wants. There's a piece of me that says that's absolutely right. But there's another piece of me that says, these are still public services. There is still a need to ensure the public good. So should government just get out of the way completely? My answer is probably not. There's probably a way to figure out which regulations make sense and which regulations don't make sense. And can't government play a quick and vital role in clearing the path of all unnecessary regula regulations while still uh, ensuring the broadest public good? That's, to me, smart government. Do you think they can do that? And when I say government, I, I mean at the federal level because each state is sort of independent and, and completely different in terms of the regulations. But do you think that there is an ability for government to sort of, instead of shooting itself, and again, this is not on partisan lines, but instead of shooting itself its own foot, can get behind certain ideas and do this in the, 
I guess in in the time that it that it would allow certain startups or or even an industry to to essentially flourish. So, for instance, not taking six years to decide whether or not Airbnb Airbnb can operate in New York, right? And again, that's on the state level, but something along those lines, or the same with Uber. Do you think that there's a way for government to move fast enough? to instead of stifling these industries to to help support them i guess or or essentially to even say yes or no to them well i think there are ways for the agencies if they have the courage right to advance the needs of startups i right. don't think there is much hope that congress could ever do anything to advance the needs in any short timeline i think there are important ways in which the executive primarily through the bully pulpit Ability through uh, uh, speeches from the president and uh, white papers from the executive office to advance the needs of startups and send signals to the industry, on uh, you know, and send signals to the states and municipalities on the proper way to uh, ensure the value of drone deployment or the value of Uber deployment or the value of Airbnb deployment. Uh, uh, in a way that balances uh, the needs of society and the needs of uh, uh, technological advancement, you saw th we saw this with uh, the F uh, uh, Obama uh, President Obama's statement on net neutrality. Sure. Uh, he sent a very strong signal to the Federal Communications Commission that there is a way to encourage startups, uh, a regulatory structure to encourage startups to uh, uh, deploy their services, knowing that they could reach the internet without an intervening gatekeeper. To me, that was a very strong statement from the White House. It took courage for the White House to do that because it contravened um, uh, uh, the positions of a lot of the most powerful players in Washington, Verizon and AT&T and Comcast, etc. You know, we see the Netherlands has uh, embraced the concept of net neutrality. I think that's an interesting statement for the Netherlands to make and to say to its startup community, come to the Netherlands. You come to the Netherlands and guess what? You're going to have free, unfettered access to the internet without having to uh, go through the extortion racket that the internet access provider is going yeah. to offer you. It's a great idea because it's, it's essentially fostering business. I mean, it's a I don't want to say it's a genius idea. It almost seems like common sense. You know, you want to make a, a, a certain place completely hospitable for a business to come in and say, look, flourish, have at it. We want you here, um, yeah. as opposed to sending mixed signals here and there. And those debates play very well, I think, at the executive and at the agency level. They sure. can't play well in Congress, which is beholden to deep-pocketed special interests. Yeah. I mean, I think you see that in New York specifically, and again, on the state level, but at the end of the day, when you have this debate over, over Uber that was going on for, for so long, you, you literally look at industries that are just going to be flattened by technology that comes in and essentially says, look, you're inefficient and thanks so much, but you know we have something better. And for someone to, for a congressional representative to, to accept that is, uh, you're asking a ton, right? Because yeah. of the same special interest that you discussed. If I can ask more on a, more on a, sort of a larger scale do you see and this is a, a question that i sort of play with all the time those people that 40 years ago or 50 years ago would have gone into government maybe 60 years ago would have gone into government to change things up do you see the new iteration of those people going into tech instead to try and change the world and again this is a very sort of broad question but it's something that that i've always sort of thought of is you know people of my generation they're they're not gunning to be the next congressman. They're not gunning to be the next state reps. They're they're gunning to you know find find a a way to partner with an NGO to deliver medicine in a really efficient way in a startup culture. Do you, do you see that um, going forward? Frankly, I don't, and I'll okay. tell you why. And maybe I'm being Pollyannish about this, but I lived it. What I imagine is for the next. 
10 or 20 years, there are going to be young folks coming out of law schools and political science programs and public policy schools who see the revolution, who see this incredibly rare opportunity where a young lawyer or a young policy advocate has the ability to create the laws that are going to govern the world for the next hundred years. That to me is an incredibly rare moment, the likes of which a young lawyer sees but once in a lifetime. We've maybe seen it five times in American history. That is a profound opportunity for someone who cares about tech policy. Uh, so, look, I saw this in 1996. What happened in I was, uh, you know, I was a civil rights lawyer until mm -hmm. then. I was bored to death. I'm embarrassed to say I was bored to death. I thought I was fighting the great issue of the day, fighting for civil rights and civil liberties in America. And I thought, why am I bored? Am I that ignoble that I don't see this as an incredibly important role for me to serve? And I thought, you know what the problem was? Most of the great intellectual battles had been fought by my predecessors in the 60s and 70s. Sure. For me, it was retrenchment. It was fighting the same battles and rehashing old arguments. Then what happened? 1996. The Communications Act was dramatically revised. The internet was just happening. I thought, oh my God, isn't this a brilliant, wonderful opportunity for a young lawyer to help shape the laws? So what did I do? I saw this as a great moment to run to DC. I went to the Federal Communications Commission and I thought, this is amazing. I am playing an incredible, vital role as a young lawyer writing the new laws of you know, the rules of the road for the digital world. That is an opportunity you can't. You know, you, you, you can't make up. It, it was wonderful for me, and I see that happening now. When I see some of my best and brightest graduates and their inspiration to play that role, a bunch of my graduates have gone to D.C. because they see the value of playing that role right now. Now, does that mean they're going to spend their careers as uh, policymakers or policy advocates? No, but it means they're going to play a role in shaping the law, and maybe they'll come back out and work in industry. I've been in and out of government, in and out of industry, in and out of academia. Uh, that's the way to play it, I think. Uh, 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 shape the laws and you know play a role in uh, creating the new startups and the new laws. And do you think that there's an opportunity to shape it? In other words, and I agree with it, and, and my God, may your stance be, be the actual truth itself um, because you have a very optimistic view of it, and I, and I, and I want to believe that'll be the case. Do, do you see the opportunity for them to actually get in positions of power given you know the situation that we have in this country? I think the Obama administration has been wonderful about taking the best and brightest out of technology and letting them be inspired and see the value. So to me, I feel like this administration is almost like the FDR administration where Roosevelt brought in the best and brightest from academia and uh, industry to create the new laws. I see the Obama administration doing that too. If you look at the Office of Science and Tech Policy at the White House, he created the new chief technology officer and a staff in the Office of Science and Tech Policy that comes largely from the new innovative startups of the past 20 years. Sure. They see the needs of the startups. They see the uh, dramatic revolution going on in society, and they're now playing a role in the policy arena. Tell me what you think, and, and we only have a couple minutes left, but I, I'd love to get your take on the lawyer of the future. Um, and here's what I mean by this, and that, and I always sort of give this example, in that you had two extremes before, and, and I always use, for some reason, I use uh, men's fashion as an example of this, and that, you know, there used to be a time when the lawyers were essentially, you could get something um, done custom for you, right, a custom suit. So you could come in and say, look, I, I want to start up a company. And the lawyer would essentially say to that client, well, look, it's going to cost $3,500. 
uh, for uh, for that LLC agreement, and I'm gonna you know shape it in whichever way you want me to. I'm gonna literally alter it in whichever way you need me to, and it's gonna be perfect. And it's gonna be just for you, right? Mm-hmm. The other extreme is the off the rack extreme, where you're gonna pay like let's say legal zoom you're gonna pay 100 bucks maybe 200 bucks and you're gonna get something on sale it's not gonna really fit you well but for all intents and purposes you could put it on and you can wear it without sort of being ashamed likely right mm-hmm. my uh, w- what i always talk about is the new role of lawyers being that of of a tailor right or bespoke mm-hmm. made to measure which is essentially you use that fragment that garment that that is not necessarily expensive and then you pay that individual 300 bucks 500 bucks a thousand bucks to then tailor it specifically to to whatever specifications you have um that's kind of where i see law going uh in terms of being a lawyer and and specifically a solo or small firm attorney because big firms I, i i think are a different uh a different area altogether what's your take on on the future lawyer a future solo lawyer future small firm lawyer specifically in the transactional basis where do you see them so I'm Pollyannish again, unlike most of my peers, I think. Uh, I think there is a great opportunity for the lawyer who is well-trained and has learned the subtle, sophisticated, nuanced appreciation of the law. So the Internet has disrupted almost every profession. Sure. Uh, And law is not immune. But I feel like lawyers are in a great place where we are living in a world where the Internet is going to do the crap. Right. The things that lawyers shouldn't have been trained to do anyway. Uh, you know what? What is the what? What lawyers should learn to do is to do that which the internet cannot do. And what is the internet very good at? The internet is very good at distinguishing between zeros and ones, yes and no, black and white. The internet is terrible at working in the gray areas. You know who's good at working in the gray areas? Lawyers. Exactly. Lawyers do exactly that piece of the puzzle that the internet cannot do. So shouldn't we be in a perfect world? There is no friction. There is a world in which the internet does everything we don't want to do. It gives us all the templates and then says, lawyers, bespoke it. Figure out the nuances. Figure out how to tailor this and make this perfect. Because we, the internet, cannot do that. You, sophisticated, subtle, nuanced lawyer, can do that. So for me, it comes down to lawyers being able to see both the big picture and then figuring out how to narrowly do what lawyers do best that no one else, no technology, no other service sector can do and do and, and, and complete the picture. Which means, in my mind, lawyers should get paid very well for doing that which no one else and no other technology can do. Makes sense. I, and I hope that uh, that continues to be the case. I'd like to stay in business. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much. How, how do people find you? How would they learn more about the programs that you're involved in? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Jaskin. Okay. Or you can find me at Brooklyn Law School or the Brooklyn Law Incubator and Policy Clinic. If you go to brooklaw.edu slash blip, you'll find me pretty easily. Or just Google Jonathan Askin. Perfect. Jonathan, thank you so much again for uh, for talking to me today. I, I, I have to tell you, I had an awesome time talking to you about all these topics, and I think they're they're beyond relevant. And your take on them in, in the optimistic sense that you have, I think, is uh, – uh, is great. Um, and I, again, want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Thanks, Jonathan. Take care. See ya. Bye.